You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer. In today's episode, we bring you an interview with a veteran leader in English higher education, Dame Madeline Atkins. She's the former CEO of the Higher Education Funding Council in England and is now president of Lucy Cavendish College at the University of Cambridge. In this episode, she tells us about a program that has led to the college admitting over 90% of students from state schools, as in taxpayer-funded, non-selective, free-to-attend schools. She tells us what they did to get students into the elite institution and how they're setting them up for success. Dame Madeline, Madeline Atkins, thank you so much for joining us on the Times Higher Education podcast today. Sarah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, you are here to speak with us mostly about um, a, a pretty fantastic uh, accomplishment that Lucy Cavendish College uh, has achieved. But before we begin, could you just tell us, give us a brief introduction of, of who you are? So um, my name's Madeline Atkins. Um, I'm currently the president of Lucy Cavendish College in the University of Cambridge, uh, which was established in uh, 1965 and has a DNA right from its founding moment to open the Cambridge door to communities that were historically excluded from the university. And, and this, uh, this fits with my own personal trajectory, I have to say. Um, in my background, uh, my PhD was looking at how in the sixth form students get selected for different streams and different opportunities. Uh, obviously, I've been a teacher in a large comprehensive school as well. Um, and then um, I was fortunate enough to get a lectureship at Newcastle uh, University, Newcastle on Tyne University. And among other things there, we introduced the first widening participation programme for that uh, university. Um, and uh, that, that was fantastic, uh, really opened our eyes to what we could do and was very successful. And then I moved to Coventry University and they were uh, very kind. They appointed me as vice chancellor and I had the most wonderful nine years there. And some people would call that an access university. Uh, we, so from a Russell group to a modern university. And then from there to uh, the chief executive of the Higher Education Funding Council for England, or HEFSI, HEFKI, I really don't mind how it's pronounced. Um, and a, a fair bit of our agenda at HEFKI was access, widening participation, different programmes to achieve that, evaluating the success of those programmes, thinking about how best to leverage funding that we did have, how best to track and evaluate the success of programmes and so on. And then uh, from there, as I say, um, hugely privileged to, to be appointed to Lucy Cavendish. So Lucy Cavendish has achieved something which, as I said, stands out within the Oxbridge community, and that's 91.1% uh, acceptance. <laughs> 
of students from state schools. And that's compared to, I think, an average at Oxford of 68% and at Cambridge across the colleges at 72.5%. So it does stand out. And it, it sounds like, <clears throat> hearing about your history as an educator, that this is kind of building on that experience because the, the success of this really was an outreach program into secondary schools. Tell us a little bit about that. So thank you. Yes, we are indeed the most diverse college uh, in Cambridge. I can't speak for Oxford. Um, but it built on our experience of how best to reach the hard-to-reach communities. So, as I said, we were, we were set up um, in 1965 to be the door opener for women of mature age who had been denied the opportunity of an undergraduate education, either by their family or for religious reasons or for a whole heap of, of personal um, reasons. And so running deeply through this college was a commitment to seek out talented individuals, give them the opportunity to uh, come to Cambridge, and then, really importantly, to make sure they thrived once they got to Cambridge. Um, so we built on that tradition and our experience of supporting non-traditional students going through Cambridge and then we added to that research on what really worked in terms of outreach. So, for example, we know from research that one-off interventions really don't achieve very much. And we worked with schools in disadvantaged areas and their pupils, very keen to understand the constraints, the life constraints on these talented young people um, who wouldn't otherwise consider even university, never mind uh, a university that's hard to get into. And we came to the conclusion that the traditional way of doing outreach wasn't going to work for the mission that we had. Uh, it's very difficult for these young people, for example, to come to uh, Cambridge for a couple of weeks in the summer. Um, these are young people whose part-time jobs are vital for the family income. They may also have caring responsibilities in, for younger siblings. Uh, they may have a disabled parent uh, that they are also looking after. Uh, and so we tried to start from where these talented young people were, added to that what we knew from research worked and didn't work, and then brought the commitment, the DNA of this college in behind that. And we identified about 180 schools in disadvantaged areas. Um, using Was this across, across the country? Across, across England. The UK? Okay. Um, using government data. And these are schools which um, have little or no history of sending their sixth formers to... Oxford or Cambridge or the hard to get into universities. And we, we sort of reached out to those schools and particularly the teachers within them to say, what would really work for you? What would really make the difference here? And their response was very much around academic attainment rather than aspiration raising. Lots of aspiration raising going on. We've been doing it for decades in the sector. Um, but th the issue for them was that their students, very bright, had great GCSEs, 
but they weren't getting the A-level grades they needed to get into the top universities as they saw it. And just, I'm just going to interject here for our, our non-English listeners. GCSEs are the qualifications that 14 to 16-year-olds get, and then A-levels are the qualifications that you would need to get into higher education. Sorry, continue, please. That's absolutely fine. Uh, my mistake not to make that clear. Um, the, um, and so we, uh, as I say, we worked with the teachers in the schools, and we've put together this program. One, it's online. The students don't have to get in a bus or make travel arrangements or, or whatever. They don't have to come away from their family or, or for a couple of weeks or anything like that. Two, it's free. Um, and we uh, were very fortunate to have a number of benefactors who share our values and our commitment um, and have very kindly provided funding for this. And w- would, those be, would those be kind of alumni or um, individual companies? What, what, what is the model behind that? Uh, some of it is alumni, but it's also individuals who perhaps themselves um, found it hard to have these opportunities, this equality of educational opportunity, and really appreciate what a university education can do by way of opening life choices. Um, so it's individuals, some of them alumni, but not all. Okay, private indi- private individuals. Private donors. individuals who share the values and the commitment, uh, and often from their own background have experience that resonates with this. Um, and we focus on the academic attainment. So there are two streams uh, to the program. One essentially around science, mathematics, medicine, for those looking for those degrees, the other in the arts, humanities, social sciences. There is a uh, workshop roughly every two weeks, which is academic in its focus and designed to to challenge, to extend, to enrich the A-level material and work that the students are doing in the school. Then there's a a boot camp, if I can call it that. which helps them to think about the degree they want to do and and introduces them perhaps to a wider range of potential universities and courses than they might otherwise have considered. And then right at the end, so this runs all through the the, uh, first year of the sixth form or year one of college. And then in the second summer, Uh, when they're thinking about their application to university, we run again an online boot camp which aims to uh, help them write a really compelling and competitive application uh, through UCAS uh, to maybe Oxford or Cambridge or or one of the, the hard to get into universities. And we help them think through what the application process is going to be. If there are interviews, we give them mock interviews, we explain, you know, the process so that, you know, we optimize, we optimize their, their chance. It, it sounds like it's, uh, it's essentially the private tutoring program that a lot of individuals at, at private schools around the country are probably paying for and, and doing already off their own back. Was this, um, was it Lucy Cavendish faculty who were providing this tutoring or did you bring in um, outside faculty and lecturers for this? We brought in outside faculty, carefully, of course, carefully selected, carefully vetted, uh, particularly uh, people who have experience of teaching in schools as well as in university. So they understand the bridging requirement, the intellectual and academic bridging requirement 
from A-levels into uh, demanding degree programs. It's a great accomplishment uh, to get the students onto your campus. Um, one thing we often hear, though, of widening participation, a, a criticism of it is that once students get there, they feel totally out of place, fish out of water, this is not for me. What support structures have you put in place to ensure continuation and, and progress of these students? Yeah, that's a great question, and you're quite right. Imposter syndrome, as some people call it, can be very real. So we start by bringing all our first year of the new intake together for free for a week. They actually come for a whole week before anybody else turns up in, in Cambridge. Um, and through that week, we uh, tackle imposter syndrome. Uh, we give them experience of real teaching at the Cambridge level. They do real work. They get feedback on it. At the end of the week, we aim to have done really three things. First, to reassure them that they are working at the level required so that they don't sit in their room 24-7 thinking I, I have to work all the time to justify my place or those sorts of things. Um, secondly, that they have made all sorts of friends in that first week, realising that there are people just like them um, and they may come from different backgrounds, different values and beliefs and so on, but actually they're just like them in many, many ways. Um, and they are not all far brighter than they are um, because everybody worries, I'm pretty bright at school, now I'm at university. Oh my goodness, there are so many more people cleverer than me, you know, um, part of the imposter syndrome. Uh, so we, we try to mitigate uh, that and we make sure that they can... Um, that they know how to make things work. They know where their lecture theatre is. They know about the library. They've already enrolled in the careers service. Um, we, uh, if they don't know how to cook, um, we will have a session if they, if they want to learn a little bit more about, you know, cooking for themselves, we can do that. Uh, we help them to budget. Um, so it's quite practical. It's very social. Um, and it's academic, so that, as I say at the end, we hope we've addressed the main issues around imposter syndrome. And then they go in the next week, goes into Freshers' Week, as it's called here, um, and most other places, um, and they all, they're already on an upward trajectory. So that's, <clears throat> that's the first thing we do. We call that Bridging Week. Mm -hmm. And then through all their time here, and this is uh, for postgraduates as well as undergraduates, we run three support programs. And this has come out of our experience of being the college we, we are. Um, this was really important for the women of mature age, which is where we started. And so we have refined and developed, evolved what we have done before. Uh, the first program is welfare and well-being. Really important that that's right from the beginning. We put a, an emphasis on upstream resilience. We have a fund, um, which again, alumni particularly support, called Make the Most of Cambridge Fund. And this gives them some financial support to pay for clubs and societies and to join in activities in the university so that they aren't, uh, by financial need, they, they don't feel excluded from the wealth of opportunities that, that are in Cambridge. Um, and of course, we have a whole welfare structure which integrates with the university's uh, welfare systems and mental health systems. So that's number one. Um, number two, 
we um, have a, a program called Academic Skills Enhancement. And that's got a couple of things in it. First of all, we know um, that some of our students have come from schools which were uh, didn't necessarily have the teaching uh, capacity, for example, for further maths, or they may have taken a maths course which didn't have much statistics in it. And so we have workshops that make good some of those deficits. <clears throat> and um, we also take students who were homeschooled. And there again, um, they can sometimes find there's a, a whole part of the curriculum they just never did. Um, and so we aim to put that in. That was one question that I forgot to ask you when you were speaking about um, the, the outreach program is how did you identify the students in those 100, was it 180 schools that you worked with? How did you identify the students who would take the online course? Oh, so we work with the teachers in part on that. They have the, the students on the program have got to have had good GCSE results. Okay. That's the academic potential. And then they have to meet one or more of the widening participation criteria. Okay. So coming back to the um, academic skills, um, so part of it is is content-based, if you curriculum content-based, but much of it is learning how to how to thrive in the pressures that a Cambridge course brings. So um, it may sound simple, but quite important things like. How do you gut a reading list? You don't necessarily have to read all 24 books that have been put on the reading list for your essay next week. How do you take really effective notes in a lecture, in a formal lecture? Many students haven't been in that environment before. How do you get the most out of the small group teaching? How do you uh, revise effectively? And so those are sort of what we call academic skills. How do you, what are the ways you can structure an essay in order to achieve certain outcomes of argument or whatever it might be? Um, so that's the second program. And, and that's there to make sure they get the best possible degree they can. A bit like our academic attainment program was to get the best A-levels you can. This is about getting the best final degree you can. And um, that matters to them and indeed for their careers. And then the third component is careers and enterprise. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on this right from the start to their very first week in the college. We know for some of these students, there's no family background to help them into the jobs they might aspire to. They don't have networks from the family or from the school. And so part of our role is to provide that social capital, as some people would call it. Um, and we do just that. So there are lots of activities we work with, uh, for example, the life science um, companies around us. AstraZeneca is a fantastic supporter of the college. We source um, opportunities for um, uh, going in and meeting employees at different levels in the company, you know, two years after graduation head of a department, the chief exec, um, so they can see that actually careers are not linear in many cases, and there are lots of opportunities uh, that they might not have um, considered. Um, 
we source internships for them and um, uh, work shadowing and mentoring and all of those things. Really important that we think that through so that they get the highest quality job that they wish when they graduate. And there is no gap between their first destination and the first destinations, shall we say, of those more socially privileged. Mm-hmm. So it's that it's that social mobility element. It's kind of uh, hardwiring that social mobility and social connection element to it. Um, you'll probably be aware of the most recent statistics that came out uh, on student continuation, that something like 20,000 students, undergraduates are dropping out this year as a result of um, the cost of living crisis. What are you doing there to support students at Lucy Cavendish to to make sure that they're able to pay their bills? I mean, I know you mentioned the, the fund so that they can join clubs, but how are you addressing the real issues that students uh, are facing with the cost of living crisis? Great question. And it really does matter. You're quite right. Um, so in Cambridge, um, there is what's called the Cambridge Bursary which is available to all uh, undergraduates at Cambridge who have certain um, financial, a certain level, financial level of background. And that adds to the maintenance loan from the student loan company. So um, we have at Cambridge right from the start a a much better deal, if you see what I mean uh, there. Um, We also have hardship funding. Uh, within the college, we have ways of um, supplementing students' um, uh, students' revenue, students' money, so that, for example, they eat properly, and so that uh, they are not um, socially isolated. We run lots of free social events with food. Um, And we, as I say, we have our own hardship funds. Also, the university has very generous hardship funding and many of our students qualify for that. Um, And so there's a process by which we can help students to uh, access. Uh, We we have an officer in the college whose job indeed is just that, is to help students who are financially uh, up against it uh, to make sure that they're okay. And as I said, people may think this is... um, that this is sort of wrong somehow, but um, we do encourage students, you know, to cook for themselves and to, uh, you know, source food from the market. It is a good life skill. It is very much a good life skill. It really is. Um, And not every student comes in to college able to do that. I certainly didn't know. We we have lots of fabulous kitchens. One of the benefits of being previously a women-only college is that we have fantastic kitchens. So there's really... Uh, there's really no excuse in that sense. Um, and it's quite fun. I can imagine for an 18-year-old, though, how, how there would be much other fun things that your mind might be <laughs> focused on. Um, one thing that universities are talking a lot about, because this, this widening participation um, access question is, is a real kind of stinker that higher education hasn't quite figured out how to do. One of the responses and solutions to that is the kind of turning around and reaching down into the secondary schools and the high schools that they're connected to. So it's quite interesting that you have found success with this. Um, is this, would you say that this is kind of the golden ticket to figure that out, to crack that? Um, or are there any other interventions that you think uh, higher education providers can be doing to, to 
to extend access to their education to the people who might not think it's for them or be able to access it otherwise? I would say this probably. I think over the last two decades, universities in this country have really reached out in all sorts of ways. Um, the, the question always is, have we got the data to know what works, what doesn't work so well? And of course, the social context of schooling changes. So now we've got the outcomes of the COVID period, which is going to be with us for you know, quite a few more years. Um, those young people who were in, you know, who are 11, 12, 13, just going into secondary school, as COVID hit, have probably had three years of, um, well, of, of, of huge disruption. Now coming into the time of public exams, um, very difficult for them, I think. And we will see that still coming through, therefore, for, for several more years. So I think one of the things I'd say is that you know, you've got to be adaptable and flexible and really listen to the schools, the teachers in the schools, and indeed the young people themselves through service, whatever your data sources are. Because I don't think it's static. I think, I think it changes. And so one has to flex in turn. So, and I think, for example, we, we would probably have done a rather standard, traditional kind of outreach if it hadn't been for our history and, of course, COVID, ironically, which meant we had a lot more experience of online teaching than we had had before. Um, would we change that? Well, yes, if the context changes, we would also then want to flex uh, what we do. But if you're trying to reach schools that have not previously come through into this dynamic, and if you're trying to reach young people within them who've got, who are talented, who've got lots of potential, um, but are in really quite difficult circumstances, home circumstances, or in care, or whatever, um, I don't think there's any substitute from taking off our scholarly hats and just listening, and then thinking hard about what would be the best intervention at that point. How are you guys thinking about the, the COVID generation? And is there sufficient um, discussion around what's, what's coming down the pipe for those students and the very specific needs they will have? I think there's lots of discussion about that and lots of sharing of experience. Um, and again, listening to school. So I'm hearing just literally today that um, year 10, that's the first year going into GCSE, are causing a number of issues in secondary schools that um, are new and difficult for them because there have been three years where they were not perhaps the core of uh, focus through COVID because they weren't in an exam, public exam stage. Um, so you bet there's lots of talk about it and, and lots of discussion and sharing. I, I think apart from the academic side, and we would say our academic skills program will flex as needed. I think it's also the social side. It's students that, that are coming through to university without having had 
the traditional time, age 16 to 18, where they were you know, forming friendships and social groups and ex pushing boundaries a bit, exploring opportunity. You know, a lot of them didn't have that. They were just at home. And so that also has had to work its way through, I think. Um, and, and who knows? I mean, we've got, I don't know what the consequences for the primary school, people who are primary school aged, as they come through, will we have caught up by the time they apply to university? What, what will be the, the experience they have in secondary school? Very hard without monitoring it carefully. And as I say, working in partnership. Uh, with schools to, to really to know what's coming. My last question for you, Madeline, was about um, the decision to uh, shift Lucy Cavendish from an, an all-women's college quite unique within Cambridge to a co-ed college, which you got a bit of pushback on that, um, which any public decision will get some pushback. Um, tell me a little bit about what that decision meant and then how does that fit into your widening participation agenda? So uh, we were established to open the Cambridge door to women of mature age who had been denied the opportunity of going to university when they were younger. So we began with women in their 30s and 40s who were either trying to move up the professional career ladder, and so they came for a postgraduate course, um, May I say, perhaps they had experienced some misogyny on that journey. And, and you know, this was the glass ceiling era. And, and or because of their family or their religious community or um, for all sorts of personal reasons, they had been denied an opportunity to be an undergraduate at age 18, 19, 20, 30, whatever. Um, so we have always been about our, our DNA, our historic DNA has been about opening the Cambridge door to historically excluded, underserved, underrepresented community. When we roll forward to 2018, the groups who are underrepresented, historically excluded, non-traditional have changed quite a bit. They've expanded and changed. So we certainly didn't turn our back on women of mature age, but we decided to be true to our DNA and our founding mission and vision that we had to open the door to more than just women of mature age. And that was the decision that meant we the consequence of that was that we then opened the door to those from 18 years upwards and of all genders with this focus on being broadly representative of UK society. And here we are in 2023 and we are broadly representative of UK society in our undergraduate UK population. That's incredibly important for us as a college. It's our mission. Um, it distinguishes us perhaps from other colleges which were not founded on the same basis. And uh, I have to say it was a unanimous decision of the trustees to do this. Um, we tried very hard to explain this. And, and I think, although you said there was <clears throat> a bit of pushback, 
the majority, the vast majority of our alumni um, and our students were very supportive of this change. Does that answer your question? It absolutely does. Um, I was I was reading a little bit of the criticism of the decision, and a lot of it was from alumni who uh, were more mature students uh, who were disappointed that maybe that special avenue to higher education would no longer be exclusively for them. And it struck me a little bit as uh, lifelong learning, which is another big topic that universities are talking about. And it it, it seemed to me like it was kind of a, a pivot away from lifelong learning, which is kind of how we think about uh, education for mature students, more to a focus on getting that traditional 18-year-old into a, a residential university experience. Am I seeing that right? Or, or is lifelong learning part of what you're trying to do at Lucy Cavendish? So we are one of a handful of colleges that take a large number of part-time students doing um, postgraduate programs. So I would say, no, uh, we, we are very much in that space, um, nor, nor have we in any way turned our back on students of mature age. Um, the, our DNA, though, was about providing equality of opportunity. And that, I think, is our guiding principle here. And the uh, compared to the early 1960s, um, I think it would be fair to say that it is probably easier for women to be accepted now into university than it was then. Um, and so to some extent, we should, we, we felt we should shift so that we remain true to, to our founding vision. So the, the, the lifelong learning point is an interesting one. Um, the university, Cambridge University as a whole, is engaged in a, a, a quite a significant discussion about that and what our position and our role is with regard to that. But I have to say at Lucy, we have always had, um, we began, our very first students were uh, postgraduates seeking to, you know, improve their career prospects. Right, that right. was the very first cohort. Yeah. We didn't we didn't take undergraduates until the seventies, um, and and as I say, we, we're one of the colleges that take a lot of part time postgrads, many of whom are women. Dame Madeline, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you. Sarah, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure to be on your podcast. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.